of what is going on in heaven. And so in verse 2, in verse 2, he sees very bizarre things. And this is an artist's picture of what I'm going to read about. Does it look exactly like this? No. Does this get sort of close? I'd say yes. But the artist that drew this wasn't there. So this is just to help us a little bit to start to wrap around what he's saying. So here it says in verse 2 of Revelation chapter 4, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald or green encircled the throne. So I'm going to look at that first part here, and what does that mean? Well, here's the color of jasper. Jasper is a um, brownish, reddish color. And here John is saying the one who sit, sits on the throne had the appearance of jasper. So it's a brownish, yellowish, primarily this darker red color. And then he adds that it's actually Sardis. And this is the stone of Sardis. And again, it's a orangish, brownish color that's used to describe the one who's on the throne. It's interesting that the background of these two stones, one would recognize, comes from the 12 stones that were carried over the high priest and the, um, the priest in uh, Israel. And so one of the things that an astute person would begin to realize would be, wait a minute, in an Old Testament background, this has an association with the first stone up here, or the first stone and the last stone. This has an association with the 12 stones of Israel and the association with the 12 stones of Israel being carried over the priest's heart are that we really matter to God because the high priest carried them over his heart as precious stones into the presence of God. This is an association uh, in the background that comes with these colors of God, that God really loves his people. His people mean everything to him. And this was emblematic in the 12 stones, especially as they entered into the throne of God, the most holy place. They were carried symbolically by the priest because God's people matter to him so much. Something that immediately we're struck with. And then we're, we're struck with that there's a green rainbow above the throne. And this goes back in a biblical background to where did the rainbow show up in the Bible? And of course, the rainbow shows up as a promise not as green, but the full color spectrum, the rainbow is a covenant promise that God gives to Noah that never after the flood, that never again will I destroy the world with water again. I'll never do it again. It'll never happen. And so the rainbow is associated in the Old Testament with promises that God gives of who he is. And in this case, it's a promise of what he won't do. It's almost protective promise. The world won't be destroyed by water. Why is it green? 
if we go back into the Bible, the first time that green is used, the green, the color green is used in the first time in the creation story in chapter 1, verse 30 and 31. And it says there, and to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And this has to do with the diet of man. Now, this is the diet of animals. The diet of man is in verse 29. And God said, I give to you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. So God gives to humanity seed-bearing plants and fruit to eat in the original diet. And to the animals, first time it's mentioned, he actually gives to them the waving green grain to eat. And so what's the association with green in the very beginning? And I want to ask that question to you. What's associated with the color of green from its inception um, in the story of humanity? I want to ask that question to you for you to answer. What's associated with green? Growth. Well, one thing is growth. Yes, it's growth. There's things that are growing that are green. That gets us on first base. Someone else want to take that a little bit further. Newness of life. There's newness of life. It's true. There's things that are growing, and, and that means there's life there. That's good, but we're still on first base. Can someone take us further along here? Hope. Well, there's hope in that something's going to happen with, this, this, with what's green that gives us a lot of hope. And what, what is the green associated with? And what God's going to do with that? Promise of a Messiah to come. Well, we don't have a Messiah showing up with. That's going to show up in chapter 3, that the Messiah is going to show up um, after the fall. But keep going here. What is, what does God do with what's green? Are you looking for growth? Well, how does the growth happen? Maybe that's the question. How does what green cause growth? Because it's alive. Food. It's alive, but there's a missing part so far. It's, you know, the, the, um, the plants, the green plants are alive. Food. And it's food. It's food. The very first association with the color green are plants and those plants are given for food for nurturance for growth for in this case the animals to grow and in the in the context that food is connected to the food that god is giving to humanity to eat fruit and, gra and grain, vegetables that have seed in them. So the color green in its context is related to God nurturing, to God sustaining, to God empowering, to God meeting needs of humanity and his creation. And God places a green rainbow all around him. Now, who wants to make my day and put that together of God? Why would God have a green rainbow symbolically above his throne? What's God trying to say with that green rainbow? Uh, Pastor, uh, we don't need green. We need something that is mature. Would it be like green, like something that needs to mature? Okay, so, however, we can eat green, well, animals can eat stuff that's green, I can eat stuff that's green, so I'm looking at my garden right now, there's a lot of green stuff in it, and it's already ripe, 
you know, I'm looking at um, uh, some lettuce. I'm looking at I'm looking at tomato plant. I'm looking at um, zucchini plant. Uh, stuff that comes off there, I can eat. I, I can eat right away. So, w- what is God saying about Himself? Which is that He is the only source of life. Oh, that God is the source of our life. Does someone want to take? That's very excellent, excellent, fantastic. Do you want to take that a step further in how He sources our life to us through the color green? He will sustain us, nurture us. Yes, that God is the source of our being sustained. God is the source of all the nurture. Think about food and when we eat it. It's a very nurturing, happy, life-giving, tasteful experience. So God has a green rainbow above his throne because all nurturance, all sustaining. He's the all-sustaining power of the entire universe, and he's the, he's the source of all the sustenance in our life. He wants us to know that because that green rainbow shows up right around his throne. If you look at this picture here, it's pretty good because here we've got kind of God in the middle, and we've got the, the color of that's coming out from around God. And then we've got this artist conception of this green rainbow all around him. We're going to go on. Then, then before the throne, well, I'm going to read this. Um, so good. There's a lot here. And this is just the background. We need to understand the background to these three reasons of why God's being worshiped. It says, um, as in verse 3 of Revelation 4, and, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling, and peals of thunder, And so um, in the Old Testament, when God would speak, it would manifest itself like thunder and lightning. This happened at Sinai. This happened when the Father spoke at the cross about his son. Um, This imagery of thunder and lightning is actually God's voice speaking. And then we've got the 24 elders. It says here that they wear, they wear a crown. And when we look at Greek, we know that this is not a royal crown. This is a stephanos. And a stephanos in Greek is a prize received. It's a gift. It's a wreath. It's a crown. We also know that these 24 elders around God's throne that they're dressed in white. And we know that the color of white is associated in the Bible. I'm going to read a verse out of the Old Testament. The color of white is associated with the gospel. In Isaiah 61, verse 10, it talks about a garment. It says, I delight greatly in the Lord, and my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation, and he has arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. So, who, who do we think that these 24 people are? And, and I want to see, I want to get your answer. And if we want to do a little bit more research, we can turn to Ephesians 4 and verse 8 to find out something that happened when Christ ascended to heaven. He did something in his power as God. He did something when he ascended on high. I wish I would have been a part of this. And I'm going to read it. 
This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. So when Jesus went back to heaven, what did he also do? He took his believers with him, the first fruits, part of the first fruits. Yes, he took some of believers in him actually with him. In the Gospels, remember it says that when Christ was, I believe it was when he was crucified, that people came out of the grave. Mm-hmm. When he was crucified, not when he was resurrected, but when he was crucified, people came out of the grave. Um, and that these people out of the grave, I don't know if they were the ones taken or not, but, but there were phenomenal events that happened around the cross and, and the resurrection. And one of those was that God took people, believers with him, as a first fruit, as you've mentioned, of the second coming, just like Enoch was a part of that, just like Elijah uh, was a part of that, just like Moses was a part of that. At the cross and the resurrection and ascension, Jesus took human beings with him to heaven. This is why I think they're wearing a Stephanos crown, because it's a crown that is given to someone for victory. This is why I think they're dressed in white. It's interesting that no one in the angelic realm ever wears this kind of crown. It's always, the angels never wear this because angels have never had to experience victory. They already have victory. And so it's my contention that these are human beings from earth that were taken to heaven when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended. They're given a crown of victory by him. They wear a right robe of the righteousness of Christ, and they are around. For some reason, we'll find out a little later, they are around God's throne to observe what actually happens around his throne on earth as a human being. So we've got 24 elders, and then it says in the next verse, this is all in the background of the setting of why God's worthy for worship. So I would suggest to you that the gold, that the rainbow that's green represents God's ability to sustain us, to nurture us, It's a sign of hope that the 24 elders are human beings that have been redeemed fully and that are in heaven, that that wear a crown of victory. They're around God's throne as witnesses to what God is doing because God is totally transparent in what he does. God is totally authentic with himself. There's no deception in God at all. He's a God of light. He's, you can look into God and you can see totally what's there. And these 24 human beings, redeemed, are able as witnesses to see into totally what God's doing on the earth. And that's in, um, that in Revelation 4, it's saying, um, Verse 5, of lightning, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. So it calls them the seven spirit or other versions call it the sevenfold spirit. And so my question is, 
if we go back to one of the ways to understand symbolism in the Bible is to go back to the first mention of where the number or the symbol shows up and to look around the context of what's the association of that number or that color or that place or that person and take the background and place it upon the symbol and let the background open up the symbol to you. And so what is associated with the number seven? And I'm just kind of asking that to everyone here. What is associated with the number seven in the creation story? When God rested on the Sabbath day. Okay, so, so okay, God rests on the seventh day. And he completed his work. Okay, that's what I was really looking for. God rests because he has completed everything in six days. There's nothing more he can add to it, to creation. And so on the seventh day, God rests from his completed work. So the number seven is associated with completion, can't add anything to it, and it's also associated with rest, Sabbath rest. So what does this say about the kind of spirits or spirit that this is referring to in Revelation 4? What kind of a spirit is this? A spirit of finishing. Oh, yes, yes, yes. This, this spirit does not bring disharmony. This spirit does not bring disunity. This spirit does not bring unfulfillment. This spirit completes things. This spirit brings rest. Um, if we, and so... If we go also to the introduction to the to Revelation, we have in verse four. This is brought up in chapter one, verse four. It says. Um, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, who was, and is to come. This is one member of the Trinity. We'll meet this member of the Trinity shortly in chapter four. From him who is, who was, and is to come. And from the seven spirits before the throne. And I would like to suggest to you a second member of the Trinity. And then it says in verse five, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the third member of the Trinity. So I would, I'm suggesting to you that this symbolism is referring to a member of the Trinity in the, this seven, the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit is a spirit that brings completion and rest into our life. So who would we associate this with in the Trinity who's before the throne? The Holy Spirit. We would associate this with the Holy Spirit. What, what else do we notice? I think this is very important. It's very obvious. In the symbolism, what's associated with the Holy Spirit? How is the Holy Spirit pictured in the symbol? Oil. What's that? Oil. What was that? I didn't point here. Oil. oil. Anointing oil. Oh, well, yeah, there's oil that's driving, probably driving the, f what else is revealed about? What else is revealed? That's good. That's a start. What else is shown to us about the Holy Spirit? The tongues of fire. Well, this shows up on Pentecost, but, but fire 
is associated with the Holy Spirit. And fire has to do with light. And it's, it's not just light, but it's a burning light. It's, it's a flame. It's, it's on, you know, there's fire. Fire lights up the night. And it's not just a little bit of fire. It's a lot of fire It showed up from the Holy Spirit. So into the background, we've got, we've got a, green ember, a green rainbow above God's throne. God is our nurturer. He's our sustainer. We've got uh, flashes of lightning and thunder that God speaks, and it's powerful. We've got 24 elders that appear to be human witnesses that have been resurrected when and ascended with Christ as witnesses to whatever's going on in this scene, we've got human witness to it. Uh, we also have the Holy Spirit showing his present, uh, revealed as in symbol, the one who completes us, the one who gives us rest, the one who brings tremendous burning brightness about what God is like in his nature. Uh, this is how the Holy Spirit is being revealed in this scene. And then we go on. And then we've got uh, apocalyptic uh, advancement because now it speaks about in Revelation chapter 4 and verse um, in verse 6, it says, also in front of the throne, there was what looked like the sea of glass as clear as crystal. That's not this picture here. I want to suggest to you that what we have here is a lot of imagery from the Old Testament is showing up. We've got the, the throne of God, which showed up in the Old Testament in the sanctuary in the most holy place. We've got the sea of God, which when Solomon recreated the lavir, which was the, the, the water that the priest cleansed themselves with, what Solomon did is he created like a whole sea. He amplified everything from the Old Testament sanctuary, and he created this gigantic swimming pool, and it was all full of water. And so when you would look out from the throne, you would see all this water. Very interesting historically of in the Old Testament, that water came from, they were in the desert, that water came from the smitten rock when Moses struck the rock with his, with his, uh, his staff. And that rock represented Christ in the Old Testament of when he would be smitten by the law as our substitute. And as, as Christ was smitten by the law as our substitute, all of this water gushed out and the people drank that water and they were totally satisfied in drinking that water. And so that water, that, and this happened not once, not twice, this happened repeatedly in the desert. And so they would take that water, and the priests would, and they would gather up that water and skins, and that's what they would use in the levere as a symbol of Calvary, of being able to cleanse away the filth and the dirt from sin in our life. Um, and so apparently this sanctuary symbolism is showing up in this scene where the Levere shows up again of God's ability to, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then on top of that, we get this apocalyptic symbolism from the Old Testament, and it says this. So exciting. Um, and this gets really bizarre. Um, but it's controlled by the Old Testament and what the Old Testament says about this. Then it says this, also, also in front of, this is chapter 6, or chapter 4, verse 6, also in front of the throne were, was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. And in the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes 
and in front and in back. And the first living creature was like a lion, and the second living was like an ox, and the third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Now, from what this symbolism is saying, what, what are we beginning to pick up about these four living creatures? Let's just open it up before we go into the Old Testament to get fuller understanding of what in the world's going on here. Does someone want to make a comment on the wings or the eyes or the faces or where they're standing, they're next to the throne? Does someone want to take a shot at this, of, of these symbols and, and what this means? Um, I was given to understand that the, those four creatures represented the four Gospels. The lion would be associated with Matthew. The ox would be Mark, humbleness. And Luke would be man because of his intelligence. And the eagle would be John. Well, yes, you, you've gone to the far extension of that there's four dimensionalities that God reveals himself. There's four different faces that God can reveal himself to people on the earth, depending on their situation. But there's a lot we've got to back up. We've got to back up from that. You kind of went way forward. We've got to get off. How do you got to back up to where this comes from in the Bible? You've you've landed, in my opinion, perfectly on the revelation of God, and that God reveals Himself differently to people depending on their circumstances of what they need to know about God, because God always reaches us exactly where we're at, and so different characteristics of God will meet us exactly where we're at. It's incredible about God that he can actually do this, but he can. So anyone else want to give a shot at this? Hey, Pastor Scheller. It sounds a lot like what you find in the first chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 1 and chapter 10 of Ezekiel. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So um, in Ezekiel 1, now we're going into the biblical background. And the biblical background for this imagery showed up before. It's actually here we have an Ezekiel. In Ezekiel, um, God, is, God is preparing to leave. He's preparing to leave the temple because uh, the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. And so God, because of the apostasy of Israel, is going to leave and it's a radical act of god that he's going to leave the temple he's going to leave his people but they've totally apostatized from him god's going to allow the babylonians to come and capture them and take them into the 70-year captivity so that now they'll learn they'll learn about god not through blessings but they're going to learn about god through curses and urgency and being things taken away from them God has gone to plan B. He wanted to work on plan A, but he couldn't reach their understanding with plan A. So God goes to plan B, and plan B is entirely different than plan A, and that is, I am going to bring havoc into your life. I am going to turn your world upside down to create the urgency that you come to a sense of need, and then I'm going to come and I'm, I'm going to meet you in a particular way in your life situation, and I'm gonna call you back to myself. And out of the urgency that, that, um, that havoc has caused in your life, this is what's going on today in our world, the havoc and urgency and need and uncertainty and pain that's in your life, I am gonna come and I'm gonna reveal myself in one of these spaces, and I'm going to meet you, and I'm going to reveal myself, and I'm going to call you to myself. Well, God is doing a radical act in Ezekiel, and he's actually going to leave. And as he leaves, 
in Ezekiel, these four creatures show up. But in Ezekiel, they're even more radical because all four of them have four heads. And they're, they have these four different characteristics of God. And they're all moving together. And God's throne is sitting on top of the four creatures. And beneath and in the midst of the four creatures are four wheels. And the four wheels are on fire. And the four creatures are on fire. And God's throne is on fire. And God is on, on fire. And in Ezekiel, this is a composite picture of like God's chariot. And God actually leaves the temple, the most holy place, because of the destruction that's going to happen. But he reveals himself with these four creatures. And the, these God's throne, incredibly, can move seamlessly in any direction and as the throne moves the four creatures actually reveal a different characteristic about god they go to the north and a certain characteristic is revealed about god they go, they move to the east and a, a totally different characteristic is revealed about god they move to the south and God reveals something else about him. And they move to the east. And, of course, uh, the lion is revealed. His kingly power is revealed uh, as God moves. It's part of the creativity. It's a part of the communication. We have to remember that God's the master communicator and how he communicates and chooses to communicate. And this is starting to come through with these four creatures. We also recognize, if we go back, that these four creatures show up in the, in the temple that Solomon builds. Because Solomon elaborated everything that was built in the temple beyond what was built in the portable temple. And, and it's very clear in the Old Testament that when Solomon built the most holy place, he not only put the two cherubim in the middle, but he placed two seraphim by their side and they were so large their wings you can see here their wings touched the edge of the most holy place on one side and then their wings re re reached out and the seraphim's wings touched each other they were so big they were huge and and so these four angelic messengers called angels are from the most holy place in the earthly sanctuary, but now we've moved to not their symbolism, we've moved to their reality in heaven, that they're real beings that God has created. Now, we also find seraphim, when you'll remember the story in Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, Isaiah as a young man, sees God on his throne. And as Isaiah sees God on his throne, he begins to see himself. And as, and as Isaiah says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, he immediately, conversely, and reversely, sees into his true self. And he sees that he's totally fallen, sinful, broken person compared to God. And he cries out, oh, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Now, a very interesting thing happened. Gospel happens as soon. Now, think about this. As soon as Isaiah recognizes his need, he sees God. He sees himself. He confesses his need in vision before God. As soon as he sees himself, immediately 
God dispatches a seraphim, highest order of angel in heaven. He dispatches a seraphim that has six wings. And the seraphim has a coal from off the altar. And the seraphim comes immediately and touches Isaiah's lips. And when the seraphim touches his lips, the seraphim tells him what spiritually is happening to his soul, his life. And the seraphim says, hey, guess what? This is what's happening to you. God is so good that once you have seen your need, God has moved now to completely burn away your need, and but it's not going to harm you in any way. Verse 6 of Isaiah 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and with it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. This is a highly spiritual activity and revelation of God is occurring to Isaiah that the seraphim is used as a mess angel means means messenger of God seraphim means burning one one that's on fire why is the seraphim on fire because the seraphim is in the presence the immediate presence of God and so the seraphim is on fire no light only light coming out like the holy spirit the seraphim comes with six wings. Why six wings? Because these seraphims are a supernatural creature that God, there's, there's only apparently five. There's only I can't hear you. I cannot hear you. Five seraphims. Pastor, we couldn't hear you. We are having uh, difficult uh, technical difficulties. I think the pastor just, um, his Wi-Fi just went down. So we'll give him a moment. He'll come back. found my way back. So the seraphim shows up. Lucifer himself used to be the highest angel in heaven. He was a seraphim. And he looked down on the presence of God on the throne. And he was taken off the throne that he sheared. He actually was allowed to stand on the throne and look down at everything God did. Closest angel to God, highest angel in heaven. But he was taken off that place because sin was found in him. And angels with him were cast out of heaven in the great controversy to the earth. 
and Gabriel took his place and another seraphim stood on the throne of God and there were two more. And these are the highest messengers because in Greek, angel means messenger. They send messages from God to other people or a planet. And so these seraphims have six wings. And I believe the reason they have six wings is because they're so fast. Because these angels, can you think about it? Just think about this. We're, we're talking about highly spiritual things right now. We're talking about an order that we don't live in. We're talking about what, what's called the in-between order, between heaven and earth, that God has things that happen between heaven and earth and its connection. And part of that connection are seraphim and angels. And, and these seraphim can move from heaven to earth Inst almost instant I think they're instantaneous travel that they can move at God's command God can send these seraphim as we're going to find out in the seals God can send these seraphims to the earth and when they show up they are so powerful they change the course of history on earth when they do things in this case it's with Isaiah and they have a redemptive activity that's happening with Isaiah. They, they completely remove his guilt and his shame. And they restore him to usefulness for the purposes of God. And that for some reason, God doesn't use the seraphim. He's going to use Isaiah in his work. Well, we've got to move on. So here's another picture of, of this art. This is a seraphim. This is more abstract. Coming to Isaiah to remove his guilt and to restore him to usefulness for God. Hastening on, here's another picture of, of the most holy place. And this is the point I wanted to make, the note here, that this angel, Seraphim, is the closest, especially the one on the right-hand side, is the closest you can get to God. And this was the location of Lucifer's position in heaven. And he was removed from this position. He was cast out. And another seraphim was put in his place, Gabriel. And then another seraphim took Gabriel's spot. And then there were these two gigantic seraphim, seraphim in Solomon's temple indicating what's going on in heaven as real beings. So now we're going to go back to one more dimension about the seraphim. And then we're going to do an introduction to three reasons why God is worshipped. And we're going to close and take up next week. If we look at the organization of the children of Israel, we realize in the book of Numbers, that book that no one reads, in the book of Numbers, Numbers spells out exactly how the children of Israel would set up their camp, and it, and it indicates how they would leave because you've got several million people moving at once. And so it had to be highly organized. And in the book of Numbers, it, it describes how the different tribes of Israel would move. It even describes within the priesthood of what pieces of the tabernacle that they would, what different branches of the priest would move different parts of the tabernacle so that when they left, there was a certain branch of Aaron's sons that would dismantle the tabernacle and go first so that the structure of the tabernacle could be set up so that when the other parts of Israel would show up with the parts that went inside, the tabernacle was all set up and they would walk in and they would put the different articles in the tabernacle. Because God's a very orderly God, creative but orderly. Around the children, the children of Israel were composed of 12 tribes, but there were Four 
key tribes from each direction, Judahized them. And the tribe of Reuben was the face of a man. Well, what in the world is going on here with these angels? Here they are. I'd like to see is that God actually has these creatures around can can understand sorry with the holy spirit and god uses seraphim can you hear me now yes it's in and out yes that god god actually uses Still in and out. I'm so sorry. God actually uses. Shoot. <laughs> Carry out his will. That all of these creatures. That he's made. Are going to worship God. I'd like to suggest to you. One last thing before we go that this is taking place upon the ascension of Christ, that Christ has already been crucified. He's risen. people with him and Christ who's the one missing figure Okay, uh, the pastor has also, um, here you go, Mr. Mike. Can you still hear me? Yeah, we can hear you and see you, Pastor. Okay. Uh, so in chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. Next week, we're going to unpack that. What does that mean about God? Verse 11. You are worthy, our Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Second Third reason that God's worthy of worship is in chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, they see this lamb-like creature, which I believe is Christ, that has been slain and 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 Christ shows up in the scene, and everyone falls down and worships, worships him, and they say, you're worthy to take the scroll and to open it, because you were slain, and with your blood, you have purchased for God persons of every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then the whole universe, as we read this, all falls down and worships God. So next week, with this setting of God having this green rainbow as the nurturer of all of life, as God being the one who has redeemed humanity, with, the, with the, the 24 elders, with God having these four creatures that do his bidding, that reveal different aspects of his character, 
as Jesus steps into the scene, four great realities about God come into play of why he's worshipped in heaven. And next week, into this scene that we've set today, we're going to examine the four great reasons. Apparently, there are four key reasons why God is worthy of our worship that are enacted in heaven and that then come into play, that God wants the 24 elders to witness of what he's like with everything he does on the earth. He wants these 24 elders, human beings, to witness everything that he does and how good and how faithful and how true and how authentic he is in the great controversy that transpires on the earth. He wants to be witnessed by human representatives that will fall down also and say, God, everything that you do, everything that you are, we're going to take our crowns off and we're going to cast them at your feet and we are going to worship you with all our heart because of the goodness and what you do for humanity in light of all the false accusations of the devil and the misunderstanding on earth about who you are. God, you're worthy. You're worthy of our heart. You're worthy of our mind. We bow down to you as a superior being and we worship you for who you are. Next week, we are going to join in this worship in clarity of why God is so worshipped in this setting that we've set. And we'll explore it and then we'll join it and we'll be empowered by it of who God is and how he wants to work in and through our life. Praise the name of the Lord. That's where we're going in what we're doing is what happens in this scene in heaven and what does it mean on earth. So with that, we're going to close with our closing, our closing song and then we'll pray and we'll go on our way. So let's go to our music at this time. Thank you, Pastor, for these words of wisdom. Now please sing with us our closing song, Power in the Blood. Love. 
Sabbath. Praise God for music. Um, praise God um, that God is not in our orbit. He lives in a different orbit. And we're getting a little taste of the orbit that God lives in today and its impact. One thing that we know is that whatever's going on in our life, all we have to do like Isaiah is call out to him and he can instantaneously answer. He's not limited with flesh and blood. God's in a different realm. That's why he's God. God can do anything and he longs for us to call out to him in prayer. He loves it when we praise him because he's worthy, but he also loves it when we turn to him like a parent, like a child, and we call out to him in this crazy world that we live in. And we call out to him and we ask for his help. We ask for his forgiveness. We ask for him to shine light onto our path. And he will answer. He'll send the Holy Spirit. That's like a blazing fire. And the most incredible thing about God is he not only puts light before our path, he can do something even greater. He can make that light shine inside of us so that our awareness and our perception is changed and we begin to He opens up our eyes so that we begin to have more discernment into life and into people's motives and into the realities of life. And all we have to do is call out to him in prayer. Secondly, we need to realize that what we are doing as a church is highly spiritual activity, especially these 15 people that are praying together in two by two or one by one that have linked together. This gives God permission to do things that he would not otherwise be able to do for more of the Holy Spirit to be poured out, for more opening of people's eyes, for more increased spiritual activity, divine intervention, the connection between heaven and earth, to be more connected to, together because prayer actually gives God the permission to push back the forces of evil that are just as real to send his angels, to send the Holy Spirit, to increase his drawing activity in people's lives. I don't know about you, but I know about me. I, I don't know who it is. I don't know who it is. But I, I have a sensitivity meter, spiritual sensitivity meter. And I, I'm fully aware that there are people praying for me and that it's opening up spiritual realities in my life that I couldn't grasp before are happening with me because of the power of prayer and the answers because of who God is and his generosity and his goodness that God is sending primarily in angelic and Holy Spirit presence and activity. So, Please keep praying because God's on the move. God is on the move. And don't be surprised if this week you meet a lot of resistance because I know that the devil does not want you to understand the three great realities that we're going to study in the future. The devil, the devil takes all of his energy to subvert these three realities because he knows that when these three realities become clear 
victory comes into our life from God. It changes our life because we begin to see God in a much clearer way and we begin to understand what God's trying to do on the earth. So let's pray. Lord, we ask for the unrestricted outflowing of the Holy Spirit into our church and into our life. We pray that you would honor your word and that you would honor Luke 11, verse 13, that as we ask you for the Holy Spirit, that in your generosity, you would pour out your gift from heaven upon us. We pray that the Holy Spirit would go with us today. We pray for angels of heaven to be sent into our home, into our life, to protect us, to guide us, bring us messages straight from the throne of heaven to us personally, today, tomorrow, this week. We pray for the fiery sword that these angels carry to protect us from the forces of evil, to banish them from our presence, to bring light, comfort, joy to our life, to rebuke the devil in his depression and in his taking our eyes off of you. Defeat him today. He's a defeated foe. And then, Lord, help us to unite together as a spiritual force for good. Go about your purposes and your plans for us to lead other people supernaturally into your presence, to see your face, to fall down and to repent and to join forces like the Apostle Paul, to change sides and to join your side, to join us in the kingdom of heaven on earth. And Lord, we'll give you all the praise and all the honor and all the glory because we recognize that not some of this, but that all of this comes from you. And so we praise you and thank you. Now we pray that you would bless our life strengthen us, fortify us, uplift us, encourage us on our way as we go, all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our coming King. In his name, we praise you and thank you. Amen.